0: Let us turn as we begin this morning, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Right off the bat, I wanted to read verses 1 through 13 as we continue our series concerning men and women in the church. The roles of men and women in the church. As uh, we've said before, I want to make it clear that everybody understands, we're using a book written by Pastor Kevin D. Young. Uh, he is a PCA pastor He serves in North Carolina. And the name of the book is Men and Women in the Church, and Nick and I are using that as our curriculum uh, for this series. As we read verses 1 through 13 of chapter 3, you notice that these verses are the qualifications that uh, the Holy Spirit has given to us for the offices of the elder and the office of the deacon. We have, uh, uh, even though, uh, and we're going to see that in a minute, the New King James in First Timothy 3.1 refers to the bishop. So just in your mind for right now, and I'll prove to you in a minute, uh, think of elder when we read the word bishop. So this is uh, the word of our Lord in 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1. This is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop, then, must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Got a novice? lest, being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience, but let these also first be tested, that them serve as deacons being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderous, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. An important issue regarding the roles of men and women in the church is how the church should be governed. Who, who should be the official leaders of the church? That is, who should be the people who are welcomed into the offices that the New Testament gives us for this, uh, this economy, this phase of the church of Jesus Christ? What structure should the church follow? Well, this lesson will not be on the details of church government and church policy. We're not going to try to uh, talk about that in this lesson necessarily, but some elements of it, of how God purposed his church to be governed, will help us understand the different roles and that women and men should have in the church. And that's the goal that, of this whole series, so we'll continue building up on the things that we've seen so far. So today we're going to take a look at leaders, servants, and then also how to do life together based on the things that we have seen throughout this series, the four or five lessons that we've had in this series already. And the first thing I want to cease to see is that this passage in the Bible as a whole teaches us that there are two distinct offices in the church, elders and deacons. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 3 of Timothy, there Paul says this is a faithful saying if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. If you have an ESV, I think it says overseer on that particular place. That's all the word bishop means is overseer. And then if you look at verse 8 of the same chapter, Paul says, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, and not greedy for money. So these are the two offices that uh, the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ has established for History. The earliest record in the New Testament of these two offices is in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul says, Paul and Timothy bond servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. And you might think that's weird that I'm saying this is the earliest record in the New Testament of these two offices. Uh, what I mean by that is the first time that Philippians was the first written Record of it. Remember, the book of Acts was written after the epistle to the Philippines, Right? Because if you read the book of Acts, it ends at the end of Paul's second imprisonment. Right? So then he spent... uh, First imprisonment. Sorry. He spent two years in Rome. Well, it's during that time that Philippians is written. So it precedes the writing of the book of Acts and the pastoral epistles. So we see then here in Philippians that by the 50s, the early 50s and 60s after Christ, the apostolic church was sufficiently organized to have two offices, the office of the elder and the office of the deacon. And even though the New Testament uses the words elder, bishop, and pastor, it is describing the same office in the church. There's not three different things, they are the same office, Just each word just speaks of different um, emphasis of the same office. And uh, I think the best way to see that is to see how Paul himself used this word in one passage in Acts 20. Because here he brings all these three words together while referring to the same group of men. Right? So Paul is going back to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the feasts. He is in a hurry to get to Jerusalem so that he doesn't miss the, the, the feast date. But he still wants to talk to the Ephesian elders. He thinks that he's going to die once he gets to Jerusalem. He's wrong. He's still, he still lives for quite a few years after this. But he thinks he's going to be killed once he gets to Jerusalem. So he wants to say bye to the elders of the church he spent the most time with. But he doesn't go into, want to go into town because he knows if he goes into town in Ephesus... You know, dinner invitations, let's go out for coffee, and all that kind of stuff. Instead, it would take forever for him to leave town. So he asked the elders of the church, the plural elders of the church, to kind of meet him at the beach, where he can just get off the boat and then get on the boat again. So that's what we pick up there in verse 17 of Acts 20, where Luke records for us this. For Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. So this is the group he's talking to. He calls the elders of the church to come and speak to him. And this is the core of the message. In verse 28, it says, Therefore, take heed to yourself and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And this is the word that in 1 Timothy 3, in the New King James, is translated bishop. I don't understand why they do that in 1 Timothy 3. And in here, they use a different word. I I I would prefer consistent... Consistence there in the translation. But that's the same word. And then what is, what is their goal? To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So here in verse 17, which is the first verse that's on the screen, the word elders is used to refer to those with whom Paul will be talking. This is the Greek word presbyteros, from which we get our name, Presbyterians, which just signify rule by elders. And then in verse 28, Paul tells this group of elders that God made them overseers of His church. That's the word episkopos, where we get the English word episcopalians, which just means rule by bishops, but not in a scriptural way, not the bishop as the Bible defines a bishop, but something that came out through tradition later on. And the episcopalian, the Anglican church itself, recognizes that the word bishop in the Bible... It's not used in the same way that they use, but they also believe that the church has the authority in the traditional church to come up with these things as well. And then in verse 28, Paul further describes the work of the elders as shepherding the church. And this is the verb from which we get the word "pastor" in other places in the Bible like Ephesians 4 verse 11. So you can see here that these three terms are used to describe different functions of the same office, which in our context, in our church, we call that the elder. So you can refer to um, uh, Darren as elder, as Bishop Huey, you you might even wear a pointy hat if you do that, or as Pastor Huey, and that would be a biblically appropriate way to refer to all the elders of the church. Any questions so far? All right. The New Testament also makes a distinction within the office of the elder between what we call in our days the minister or the pastor and the ruling elder. It's a distinction within the same office, not a separate office. Paul does that, for example, in 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18, where he says, "...let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor." And then he uses the word especially there. It's a technical word that implies a division. That there's a division here in this group of elders. So we have those uh, elders who rule well, be counted worthy of double honor, especially from these these elders, those who labor in the word and doctrine. um, And and then he makes an argument for their being able to make their living from working on their labors from word and doctrine. So Paul says that in the group called elders, there, there are those who labor in word and doctrine in a different way than the other elders. And likely because they have been recognized by the church as the ones who are the primary teachers of the church. That's, those are the ones that today, in our context, we call the pastor or the minister in the church. But notice that Paul doesn't speak of a completely separate and distinct office when he does that. They are all elders and by implication from Acts twenty, all bishops and pastors as well. Any questions before we continue? Yes, Rick. This may not be the place for, but the difference between uh, pastor, minister, and reverend, is that something maybe we can talk about later? There's no difference. There's they all refer to the same position. Okay, yes. so we can prefer yes. I'd prefer not. <laughs> okay, but Okay. Uh, the reason is, I think reverend is a, is a title that should be to for Christ. He's, he's the only reverend one, you know what I'm saying? Uh, so, but, you know, if somebody calls me reverend, I'm not going to punch them out or anything like that. So, Especially if they're bigger than I am. Uh, but it's, it's, I, I, I prefer not, and I, I don't usually address people as reverend as well. Uh, I think a, a biblical term would be pastor, would be better pastor minister is a good term too if you understand minister as, as a servant because that's what the word actually means there but they're all referring to the same person all right anything else all right so the second office mentioned in first Timothy 3 18 through 6, uh, 8 through 13 is the office of the deacon so if you have your Bibles there still so look at verses 8 through 13 of first uh, Timothy 3. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience, but let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well, for those who have served well as deacons I obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus so here you have this and we find that in Titus as well the same a similar list or qualifications for the deacon and then also the office is described in Acts chapter 6 now in Acts chapter 6 the word deacon is not used but there is a fairly you always going to be you always going to have dissent Right? In, in, in theological positions. But there's a, a fairly uh, universal agreement in the Reformed world that Acts 6 is talking about the office of the deacon, even though the word deacon is not used there because the function is to diaconize. That's what. To serve tables, which is the word, the verb for form of the noun deacon there in Acts 6. So in Acts 6, Paul said, oh, not Paul, sorry. No, it, 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 Paul wrote so much in the New Testament you just say Paul says you're right half of the time so, but it wasn't Paul this is Luke recording what was happening there in the early apostolic church and he says there now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution Hebrews and Hellenists are two groups of Jews the Hebrews would be the Jews that spoke Aramaic likely more than natural Hebrew And then the Hellenists would be the Jews that that spoke Greek. And these all have been saved, but they're still in their kind of a Jewish ethnicity. They're gathered together. And the complaint is that the widows who were from the Hebrew-Aramaic-speaking group were getting more food than the widows were from the Greek-speaking group. And that's what the debate is going on here. So, you know, that's comforting for pastors that uh, fighting the church is nothing new. It's been going on for ever and ever, and also knows that uh, we know that the only thing that's going to resolve all the fighting in the church is the return of Jesus Christ. So it, we can relax on that one. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, they're not saying by this, Oh, this is inferior. This is not something we should worry about. This is... It actually is the opposite. This is something important But in order to take care of that, we have to leave what God has called us to do. So this is such an important thing that let's pick up seven men that can do this rightly. And let's ordain them for this job of deaconizing or or serving as deacons in the church. In verse 3, it says, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we'll give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So that's that's what the apostles who are the proto-elders are going to give themselves to. Prayer and the ministry of the word. And the same pleased the whole multitude and they chose Stephen a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit and Philip and Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas a proselyte from Antioch whom they set before the apostles and when they had prayed they laid hands on them. And that's... Uh, likely the first deacons ordained in the Church of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that there's a record of an ordination of a deacon way before there's a record of an ordination of an elder in the Church of Jesus Christ, granted that the apostles were serving as elders during that time. So notice that in the very early stages of the institution of the office of the deacon, or what we call the diaconate, we see the function of both both offices. Elders carry out the ministry of the word and prayer. Deacons carry out the ministry of mercy. And here we understand the deacons, to the diaconate to be a decision-making body. Because here in Acts 6, what were they supposed to do? Do you see any decision-making that they would have to do to fulfill what the apostles want them to do? Who gets what? Who gets what, right? Yes, they had to figure out, this is the money we have, well, guess what? So they, they, they control the purse. They control the budget. They make decisions about the budget. They make they decisions how to allot things, where this go, where that goes. So it, we believe then that the diaconate is a deliberative, decision-making board, not just something else. Uh, and that's a unique. That's not common in the church uh, to view the diaconate in that way. And these two emphasis mirror really the uh, the ministry of the whole church. The two offices mirror the ministry of the whole church. A ministry of word and a ministry of deed. This is not just the offices are doing that, but the whole church is doing that. For example, in Colossians 3.17, Paul says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So you see the the wisdom of, of, of God by appointing these two offices to, to mimic, to represent, to mirror what the whole church should be doing. Ministry of Word and Deed. And, and Peter, um, I'm not going to read it, but he affirms that in 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. You can look at that uh, a little earlier. Any questions before we continue? All right, so elders, the elders are the spiritual leaders of the church. They are going to teach the Word of God. In, in 1 Timothy 3, Verse 2, the very last little qualification there, is able to teach. And being able to teach does not mean being able to preach or lecture. Remember, there's a distinction within the office. There are those who specially labor in word and doctrine. The word doctrine is just the word teaching there. So being able to teach doesn't mean just lecture or preach. It does mean that the elders must know their Bible. They must know theology. It must be able to discern truth from error and know how to communicate it to others. That communication can be on over coffee at a coffee shop. It can be drawing things on a napkin. It can be just talking to somebody on uh, on a long drive. It can be whatever, answering a question on the corner at church. All this is teaching that the elders must be able to do. In talking about elders, Timothy, uh, Paul tells Titus that the, the elders are to hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. The elder must be able to say, ah, what you're saying, it doesn't match what the Bible is saying. And he needs to have the courage to say that as well to others. And this can, this can be done in all kinds of settings that's not limited to the pulpit or to the Sunday school lectern. Any questions? So the elders are in charge of the ministry of the word. The, deacons are, the deacon is in charge of the purse. And by implication, they serve the church in physical ways. And you might say, oh, okay, this is all uh, good and, and so on. But how in the world is this important to understand the roles of men and women in the church? And this is it right here. Because of the nature of their offices and what the Bible says of the qualifications for their offices, elders and deacons are to be men. That's how it relates to the roles of women and men in the church. Now, besides the, the consistent pattern that so far in our series that we've seen of male leadership that we have seen in the Bible so far, Paul tells us that the bishop, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, must be the husband of one wife. If we look at that, First Timothy 3, verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. Now, I know we live in strange times, but at least in, in most of the history of humanity, it would be inconceivable for a woman to be the husband of one wife. Uh, you know, I know that our culture now pushes that that's a possibility, but that's, that's not the biblical, a biblical category. So um, that's, that tells us that... No, the elder, the bishop, the pastor is supposed to be a man. And the phrase translated husband of one wife literally means a one woman man. So it is not a requirement that elders be married. No, Jesus wasn't married, and he, he encompasses all the offices in the church. It is a requirement, though, that the elder be the type of man who only has eyes for one woman. That is, that he be a faithful man. Um, Here, Now, a second reason for believing that elders should be men is that Paul's description of the qualities of an elder immediately follows his command. And it's a command, not a suggestion, not a point to debate, but his command for women not to teach or exercise authority over men. Look at just the few verses before the beginning of chapter 3 in verse 12, 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Let a, woman and, let a woman learn, that's verse 11 of chapter 2, let a woman learn in, in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Uh, I encourage you to listen to Nick's uh, Sunday School lesson last week uh, to, for a good explanation of verse 11. But here in verse 12, it's, it's clear what Paul says. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man by being silenced. It is a more honest position to say that you don't believe the Bible than to try to make this mean something else. Right? It's more honest for you to say, I just don't care what the Bible says on this than try to make this mean something else than what exactly it says here. And remember, it's not something that's cultural because if you keep on following, Paul grounds it in creation. And creation is not cultural. Creation is not situational. Creation is the same everywhere you go in the world and the universe. In the spiritual world and in the physical world. So, let's not hide behind, oh, this is cultural. Just say, I don't believe the Bible. That would be a better, more honest position than to say otherwise. Right? So, um, so Paul says, I don't permit women to teach the church as a whole or to have authority over the church as a whole. And then he goes on to describe the office of the elder. So we can see that even the place where this passage is in the book of 1 Timothy leads us to believe that um, man only should be in the office. But it goes beyond that. The two unique functions given to elders, what are they? They are to teach and they are to how do you call them? How do you call elders in general? The, the, the elders other than the pastor. They're yes, they're ruling elders. So they have to teach, and they have to rule, right? We saw that in verse 17 of chapter 5. The elders that are ruling well are worthy of double honor. So the elders have to teach and to rule. Hmm. What are those two? To, how those do these two categories match with 1 Timothy 2:12? The things that the women are not supposed to do to teach and have authority. That's the idea of ruling there. So, Paul's command in 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 essentially and functionally prohibits women from serving as elders if we believe the Bible. That, that's what what's there. You know, it may sound harsh to you, but I, it's not. And I'll try to show how it's not harsh in just a couple minutes. The Bible also teaches that deacons should be men. Now, elders should, having to be men is, a, is pretty much agreed upon in Bible-believing, Reformed churches. This second place, that deacons also should be men, is not necessarily agreed in, among Reformed Bible-believing churches. For example, if you go to Southern California, the local Pope, John, Johnny Mac, John MacArthur... Has deacons in his church, deaconesses. He has female deaconesses, female deacons in his church. Legan Duncan, when he used to be a pastor uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, he they also had female deacons in his church. Uh, The 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 guy that pretty much seems to everybody seems to refer to in the last ten years, Tim Keller used to have female deacons, deacons so deaconesses in his church. So if you look at chapter 3, verse 11, that verse has been at the center of a lot of controversy in, history, in recent history. Uh, look what it says. It says, likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderous, temperate, faithful in all things. The word translated wives in the New King James and in the ESV is simply the word for women. There's no Greek word for wife separate from the word for woman. So, the context in which the word is used has to be what determines how we understand the word. So, if if verse 11, as it is in the New King James and the ESV, those translations, refers to the wives of the deacons, then verse 11 is a further qualification, a further description of the qualifications for the deacons. If it refers to women in general then it looks like Paul is giving the qualifications for the office of the deaconess here in this passage. As I look at it, it seems to make more sense to understand this verse to be talking about the wives of deacons. Why? Well, it would be strange for Paul to introduce another office in the middle of his instruction to deacons and then return to talking about deacons because you look at verse 12... It, again, he's referring to male deacons. So you'd have 8 through 10 talking about the male deacon. All of a sudden, 11 female deacon. And then 12, 13 back to male deacon. It, it, it doesn't follow the structure that Paul has been following throughout the chapter, where elders first, then deacons, and, and so on, as far as the instruction, the, 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 the instructions go. The requirement if you look at verse twelve, there is where we find the requirement for the deacon to be the husband of one wife, or the one woman sort of man. And it makes sense when it comes immediately after the qualifications for the wives in verse eleven. So that we have that connection there between twelve and eleven. Another thing is if verse eleven is was about deaconesses, there would be way less qualifications for that office than for the deacon you notice that? If just by counting the, the number of qualifications. It, it, and if you look at the, the deacons and the, uh, and the elders, their qualifications are mirrored. There's only one that's not there that's able to teach. And then if verse 11 is talking about a completely different office, the office of deaconess, then it would be way less qualifications for somebody to be in that office. But one might ask, well, there's no qualifications for the wife of the elder. Well, the reason for that is that the the character of the elders' wives is not mentioned directly because their wives would not assist in their teaching, ruling ministry in the same way that the wives of the deacons would help in the diaconate, diaconal ministry. Uh, the, the, the elders' wives are not carrying the same burdens as the elders are with the teaching and the ruling of the church, whereas the deacons' wives will be way more involved in the diaconal ministry than uh, the elders' wives would be in the um, business of the the elders. So, putting all those things together, I think the Bible teaches that deacons should be male. It doesn't mean that women women cannot do diaconal-like work, but the office is for, uh, uh, for the men of the church. Any questions on that? All right, so... Let's put it all together. And how do we do life together in the church in life, light of what we have learned so far in this series? Well, there are at least two bad approaches in applying complementarian principles in the church. Remember what complementarian means? It means that we believe that male and female complement each other. They're not in competition with each other. They have different functions. So they are not equal in terms of functions. They complement each, each other. One wrong way is being too restrictive, defaulting to a traditional women's roles that may or may not be rooted in the Bible, making Leave It to Beaver, is that the name of the show? The standard by which you decide what a man should do and what a woman should do. That is not biblical either. So the, the biblical road has two ditches. There isn't a ditch that's better than the other. They're both ditch. And we don't want to be in the ditch. okay? The other error is being too loose in the application. Insisting that a woman can do whatever an unordained man can do. So if an unordained man in the church can preach, then a woman should be able to preach. If an unordained man in the church can have authority... And that's really not the position that the Bible has. If you look at 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12... Paul is making a much broader application than just the offices. He doesn't mention the offices till later in chapter 3. But that is the position of Tim and Kathy Keller. Now, a lot of you like Tim Keller. Be very careful. Be very careful with how much you, you imbibe in what he says. But that's their position. That a woman should be able to do in the church anything that an unordained man should be able to do. And that's not the criteria the Bible gives us in figuring out who has what role. Any question on those two for this first thing? Secondly, as we bring together the things that we'd be learning in this series, there are, and this is where I think the harshness of what may, what may be perceived as harshness might be taken away there are many things that women can do in the church. We're talking about the one thing. But there are many things that women can do in the church. This is just 13 quick, just off the top of the book, uh, uh, things that women can do. Uh, women can minister to the sick and dying. They, the women can share their faith, share their resources, and open their home for a stranger. They can invite. They can, they can write, counsel, organize, administrate, design, plan and come alongside others. They can pray. They can come alongside elders and deacons in difficult situations uh, with women or those needing a, women's, a woman's perspective. They minister to single moms and new moms. They can lead women's Bible study and teach theology to other women. They can teach children. They can raise their kids for the glory of God. They can embrace singleness as a gift from God. They can help widows. They can minister to those struggling with the remorse of a they can do all these things here in, in, or in places where the name of Jesus was never proclaimed. And this is just a sample of what women can do as they serve the body of Christ. So I think sometimes we talk about this and the focus is on this one thing that's not available for women. And we lose track of the multitude of things that men and women can be doing that is outside of holding an office in the church. But we also have learned in this series, as we do life together here, there are boundaries just like for everything else in life. There are boundaries of roles in the church just like there is in everything else in life. The offices of the church are reserved for, the, for qualified men. Women should not preach in our worship service, not teach men in the church. Women must not exercise authority over men in the church but the boundaries are few compared to what women can be doing in the church. Do you get that? The boundaries are few. Uh, I see your hand. We'll come back to you in just a sec. Compared to what women can do in the church. So be careful that you don't become like Eve. What was the command that God gave Adam and Eve? See, we always start there, right? But that's not how it is listed in the book of, of the Genesis. In Genesis, you may eat of all the trees of the garden, only of the fruit of this one tree. Right? Everything else is available to you, except for this one fruit. So Eve was so fixated on the one thing she couldn't have, that she missed the thousands of things that she could have. And we have to be careful that we don't we don't get caught up on that same trap, Renee. What about sharing the gospel to unbelievers of any female? Everyone... Doesn't matter. It's right there, number two. Uh, we'll... I know it's tiny print, but yes, share the gospel. Don't. Uh, and these days, any of the forty-six genders, you can share the gospel <laughs> with with them. Don't yeah. Don't worry about that. Just share the gospel. Uh, any uh, yeah, Stilly. Sometimes um, the uh, application of what women are to do in the church, Mm publicly, gets broadened to women's roles in like parachurch ministries and other things like that. Is that kind of a gray area, or how does that work? No, I don't think it's a gray area in my in my in in my mind, and and that's the problem with the parachurch model, right? The idea is that if we bring this outside of the scope of the church even though they are doing the things that the church is supposed to be doing then somehow the rules that apply to the the, the boundaries that apply to the church don't apply to those things. Uh, if you, if you, if you're doing church like things then church like rules apply to whatever it is that you are you are doing. Uh, I do not think however that you no know, if you're in a business so, that you cannot have a female bossy for a man. No this says in the church that's not how it's supposed to be, right? So the standard is not what the structure of the ministry is, Is what is it's doing. Is it doing what the church is supposed to be the church, then church standards should apply there, and so on. Andrew? So building on that, talk to one of your favorite parachurch ministries, uh, BSF this year, <laughs> 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 not to be controversial either, yeah. is, uh, is bringing the men's and women's groups together, I haven't heard if that means that they're going to be having a man teaching the sessions or if they're going to be having the women's leader teach one week or the men's leader teach yeah. the other. But to bring, so you know, in my mind, that would be a, a clear example of, of failing to follow what the scriptures teach. If they have a woman I'm, teaching the mixed group of Correct. Groups. Yes. And yes. I don't know how they're approaching it, yeah. that part of what copy yeah. is remaining. Yes. All right. So if BSF does that, they have men teaching, or women teaching mixed groups uh, of adults, I think that is falls. It's not in compliance with the, what the Bible teaches. Hannah. Could you give some examples of things women shouldn't do that un- or non-ordained men can do? Because he said that he shouldn't that. Steve's going to teach the Sunday school class next week. He's not ordained. Okay. Hannah's not going to teach the class. The, the, but that's an example right there. Right? So, yeah. Uh, the BSF thing is another way uh, where you might have a, a man... It would be proper for a man to teach the mixed group, even if he's not a ordained pastor, but it would not be proper for a woman to teach the mixed group. Does it make sense? Does it bring some... All right. Anything else? All right, so at the end... However, the, the, no, the most important message is not what women cannot do, but what men must do. I think that we have to come back to that. Almost every pastor that I know will tell you that the women in the church are more spiritually minded, more interested in reading the, their Bibles, more eager to grow in their faith, and more open to serve in the church. And I have no doubt that many times when women ventured into areas of teaching and authority um, reserved for men, they did so because the men had failed to teach and lead. And that doesn't excuse it, because it's still a violation of what the Scriptures say. But it does show that this is not just an issue with women. So the central message of this series is not is not women Sit up and shut up. But the central message is, Men, stand up and speak. And do it like the Bible calls you to do. Uh, Loving leadership modeled after our Savior in the Church of Jesus Christ will make everybody else's roles much more easier to fulfill than if we men fail in um, in, in our calling before God. So yet, the Bible speaks to the women and says this is the things that you need to do and not do. But also, ultimately, our responsibility lies on my shoulders, on your shoulders, man of the church, to be the kind of man that the Bible calls you to be, so that we, might. So we need to stand up. We need to speak up as well. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would embed it deep, deeply in our hearts. That we might follow you, enable us to believe in all that it says and to live according to it. For us, in Jesus' name, amen.